Hello, friends. I'm so glad you found me here at the Steward Project Podcast, but we have to start each episode with a little bit of a disclaimer. Because this podcast is focused on the intersections of service, social justice, spirituality, and self-care, please know that we will talk about some challenging topics, some things that might be uncomfortable, or some things that might trigger us. So I just want you to come into this space fully aware I also want to be very clear that I occasionally drop an F-bomb or two. So if you have young children nearby, maybe use your earplugs or make sure that they know that the person you're listening to is just really, really passionate. Here we go. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Steward Project podcast. In this episode, I want to get really honest about burnout. And I'm talking about burnout because I'm noticing it being a topic of conversation on social media and among peers and colleagues, and also because I have survived three major burnouts myself and have learned quite a bit from them. And what I'm learning now, 20 years into my experience as a social worker, are things that I wished I had learned my very first year, first day, stepping my foot into the social work world. So I'm hoping that what I share in this episode will be of help to you or someone you love, to help you understand your own burnouts or prevent one from happening. But I think it's really important that a lot of us in the service and the social justice worlds as activists, helpers, healers, and change makers, that we're honest about stress and burnout and overwhelm. Because if we're not, we just watch other people deal with it. And when we deal with it on our own, it feels like it's something that's very personal and it's unique to us rather than recognizing that burnout is very common and it's also preventable, but that there's an opportunity within every burnout to challenge yourself to grow, to learn things about yourself and the work that you want to do in the world, and to become more aligned with your purpose on this earth. So this episode is really for those of you who are doing work with other human beings, whether you're a helper, a healer, a change maker, an activist, a medical professional, a social worker, a counselor, a therapist, a teacher, an educator, a a first responder, anyone who's in that realm where you are working with other human beings, the burnout for us in the helping, healing, and change making fields is just a different flavor of burnout. So I want to talk about what burnout is generally. And then how burnout impacts those of us who are helpers and healers in a more in-depth way. And I want to share the classic signs of burnout to start with, and then I'll share a little bit about my own burnouts and what I've learned. So there are three classic signs to burnout. The first is exhaustion, and this is one of the classic characteristics. So not just being tired, but exhaustion to the point where sleep doesn't alleviate it. So I've slept eight hours. I want to wake up and go back right back to sleep for another eight hours. And as I jokingly say, it's not just that I'm tired, it's that all the women in me are tired. Exhaustion. Not just tired, but exhaustion. The second classic sign of burnout is the sense of being cut off from ourselves and others. Whether we feel like we can't touch and tap into our own feelings, there's no time for our emotions to be heard or felt by others or ourselves, or we just deprive ourselves of things that we know we need, cutting ourselves off. Or we cut ourselves off from other people. Even if we're with other people physically, we may not be present with them. So if anyone in your life has ever said, like, hey, I know you're here, but like you're not really here, that's also a sign. And then the third classic sign of burnout is decreased ability to be effective or feeling as though you're being very ineffective in your work or in your life. So the three signs, again, are exhaustion, a sense of being cut off from ourselves or others, and a decreased ability to be effective. Now, these three things can happen in any line of work. You can be making widgets on an assembly line. You can be a a bank teller. You can be a street sweeper. But, you know, you can work with things, inanimate objects, and still experience burnout in your life. And burnout, one of the ways that burnout classically is seen is that it's a misalignment between the values that you bring to the work and the values that the work is asking you to bring. So you may have gone into a job thinking that you were going to be responsible for one set of things, and then you go in and you are now responsible, yeah, sure, for that amount of things, but also, oh yeah, and here's the other duties as assigned. (laughs) Right. So you can burn out in that way, where what I thought I was 
asked to give in this job, even though I'm only making widgets, is not exactly at all what my bosses or my supervisors or my peers are asking for me. And I'm having a little bit of cognitive dissonance here. I don't know where I fit in. This isn't the job I thought I was going to have. I'm feeling overwhelmed. So that's general classic burnout. Now, for those of us who are in the helping, healing, or change-making work, whether we're when we're working with other human beings, there's a, an asterisk to our burnout, basically. And it's that our burnout, because we're working with other people, has a different flavor to it. And that flavor can be compassion fatigue. When what we're putting out, the caregiving that we're doing is overwhelming and it's too much and it's, we're just giving, giving, giving and not taking anything back, we get exhausted and it becomes a fatigue, a, a compassion fatigue. We're tired of caring. And what that shows up like is exhaustion, but also cynicism and disinterest in those we serve. And that is very dangerous, obviously, because when we're working on behalf of other people, most of the time we're serving vulnerable or at-risk populations. And those folks need us to show up whole and grounded and centered and not dealing with a bunch of other crap so that we can really fully focus on them and their needs and meet those needs. And when we're burnt out and we have compassion fatigue, that becomes almost impossible. It becomes almost impossible for us not to have that change in worldview and that sense of like, oh man, why don't these kids get it? Or like, oh my gosh, why aren't these parents understanding this? I have to say the same thing over and over again to every single client group that I meet with. And the cynicism is a protective factor for some of us in the helping, healing, and change-making fields. If we're very honest, right? I, I know as a social worker, between there's like a competition between social workers and nurses for who has the, like, the dirtiest mouth and the dirtiest sense of like, you know, conversation. Because there are times when we say things that when we're talking to each other, we're like, oh, if anybody else heard what we just said. <laughs> and you guys know what I mean. Nurses and social workers have wicked senses of humor. First responders maybe as well. And so we can be very cutting. We can say things that are very cynical to, toward the people that we serve in a way to relieve our stress and to be funny. But we always have to be very, very, very careful and aware when that cynicism creeps into the work, right? Because sometimes it is truly a relieving thing to ha be able to joke with someone else in a really inappropriate way, but you both know exactly what you mean. So that's a protective factor as long as the, that cynicism doesn't override the care and the loving and the compassion that we give to those we serve. But when we meet those we serve with cynicism or with lack of interest or with the inability to focus on what they need from us, we're not doing them justice and we're, we're not doing the work. So we have to be very aware and careful of that. The challenge then for those of us who work with other human beings is that our burnout can be very transformative. And sometimes burnout in the helping and healing fields are seen as weakness. Like we just suck it up. We just do the work until it gets done. And there's never an end and you just keep going. And yes, there are injustices and yes, things aren't fair, but we just keep pushing through. But nobody actually just keeps pushing through. And that's what I found in my experience in my 20 years. Because when I was a brand new social worker, I was asking for help with the emotions that I was holding from the work I was doing. But the response I was getting from folks who were long-term social workers and had been in the field for a long time was pretty much like, hey, suck it up, buttercup. Like, this is the work you've chosen. Deal with it. But I also watched those OGs burn out on a level that was like chronic illness level. Like, they had to retire because they got cancer or because they got Alzheimer early onset Alzheimer's or because they had a major addiction and they had to go get treatment for that addiction or because they had a mental breakdown. So I was asking them for input and information help, but I very clearly saw that the help that they were giving me was only going to lead me to that. So then I kind of had to be on my own and my own devices as a social worker. So let me share with you a little bit about my own burnouts, kind of how they came about and what I've learned from each one. And I did say I have three burnouts. I did not stutter. <laughs> And I say three because there were three that I'm a very aware of that became very apparent that it was a burnout situation, but I possibly could have had more than three burnouts just that I wasn't aware of. And I also, to be very honest and very vulnerable to say, it took me three major burnouts before I started to realize the reality of burnout and the need for radical self-care to avoid burnout. So we're going to have that conversation as well. But let me tell you a little tale about a newbie social worker. <laughs> She shall remain nameless, but her initials are Nicole Stewart. <laughs> and my first 
entree into the social work world was working in the foster care system and in the CPS world, in the child welfare world. And when I was getting my master's in social work, I had internships in residential facilities, in safe homes. One of my internships was reviewing research and interviews from sex offenders on the details of their offenses in an effort to use what they shared with us for sexual abuse prevention, but still being exposed to the acts of sex offenders. And these were all convicted sex offenders, so proven guilty by a court of law, many of them in jail for a long periods of time, prison, not jail. So I was doing a lot of work with very traumatic concepts and very traumatic material. I also then, shortly after becoming an MSW, began working in the rape crisis field. And I realize now that I was driven to that field for a very specific purpose. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about this, but this is another piece that gives the asterisks on the burnout for those of us who are in the helping and healing and change-making fields. Because many of us are drawn to those fields for very specific reasons. And I very generally say either we had an amazing childhood and we, we want everyone to have the same kind of childhood we have, or we didn't have that great of a childhood and we want to make sure no other child has to deal with that. Right? So those are the main two reasons that we come to work that is helping healing and change making. When we want to help other people, we want to prevent pain and suffering. We want to encourage healing and healthy, happy relationships. And we also have to recognize that when we are driven into this work and these professions because of our own histories, that means that we really, really, really need to be aware and do the self-care to protect ourselves because we will be dealing with traumatic material. And this is something I have to be very honest with. I knew it in my head, but I didn't know it in my body yet. And this is very important. And this is the part of the radical self-care that I, that I talk often about. We can know things in our head about how we should do things and not actually do them because it doesn't resonate in our bodies. And that was something around self-care and around burnout for me personally. I knew intellectually in my brain that I was going into rape crisis work and into the social work field because at age five, I was molested. I, my, I was able to tell my parents immediately. They believed me. They got me the help I needed, and they let me talk about it anytime I needed to. And it wasn't until I was older in my late teens and early 20s that I realized not only do other kids experience what I've experienced, but for some other kids, when they tell their parents they're not believed, for other kids, they can't even begin to tell their parents, so they hold it completely. For some, when they tell their parents, not only are they not believed, but they're blamed for it. And then when I realized not only are some kids dealing with this, but it's their parents who are the perpetrators, like that blew my mind. It shifted my worldview. And that built a fire in me that said, all right, Nicole, because you had an experience of this horrible trauma, but then everything went well for you and you had an amazing childhood and you were loved and you were believed and you were held and seen and heard and all these wonderful things, it is your duty to make sure that other kids are safe too. And I didn't take on that duty in an ego way. It wasn't a like, I'm the only one who can save the world, so I have to, even though that kind of was my thought. But it wasn't from a place of like, da -da -da -da, Nicole is here to save the day. It was more from an internal place of in order to heal my trauma, I need to help other people either prevent or heal their own. And even just saying that sentence out loud right now was not something that I absolutely knew cognitively 20 years ago. It was something that was in my head and I knew I could actually articulate, I experienced this trauma, the result of it, you know, my parents and, and my family rallied around me and I had a lot of love and support. And still, I know that that trauma impacted my life. So now I want to make sure that other kids who are experiencing the same traumas get the help and, and care and trust and safety that they need. So I could articulate that absolutely intellectually. But what I wasn't aware of back then that I am now and that I want to share with you right now is that even when you understand something like that intellectually, you have to allow yourself to understand it fully in your body. And that takes time. That takes growth. That takes awareness and it takes support. So I'm at a point 20 years into my career where I absolutely know what my body feels like when that fire is lit, when I am triggered, when my past traumas come right up front and are laid in my lap 
because I'm dealing with a case that's very similar and it's echoing that for me. And I can still show up and be that safe person for that other person on the other side, knowing that my five-year-old self is safe and I don't have to bring her into the mix, if that makes sense. I got really deep right now, (laughs) really quickly. So let me back up a little bit and share again what that first burnout was like for me. So I could articulate in my brain and and even verbally articulate, I want to be a rape crisis counselor because I was assaulted as a child and I know what it's like, but I got all the good things and now I want to help other people. But because it was just in my head and I was not paying attention to my body at all, and this is common, this is very, very common. Many of us, we live our lives above the shoulders, right? It's, it's scary to, to feel things <laughs> and to be in touch with, with our pure vulnerability. So I was able to know that in my head, but I wasn't paying attention to what was happening to my body while I was doing that work. So I did rape crisis work for a good eight years. I was doing hotline calls. I was doing hospital visits. I was helping, you know, survivors with the process of the rape kit. I was on the other end helping helping folks who were in the court process understand what the court process was like and advocate in that regard. My role, my actual title for the organization was doing more community engagement and communication. So I was the one speaking to the media. Anytime there was a rape case in the news, they came directly to us to find out, hey, how do we talk about this? Or do you know any victims that want to speak on this? So I was constantly, always dealing with sexual assault as the topic of my work. And there was a lot of passion and a lot of drive. Like I said, that fire was lit in me and I was a brand new social worker. So I was just gung-ho. And what I found when I started doing rape crisis work, because I went in thinking, okay, not a lot of people know that this stuff happens, but when we educate people about the fact that sexual assault is very common and kids under 18 are often victims and People are going to be like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Thank you so much for telling us. Now we're going to not rape anybody. And when we see it, we're going to tell somebody. And when a victim comes to us and tells us they were raped, we're going to say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. We believe you. Let us help you. No. And none of those things were true. So I went into a profession because of my own traumas with a fire to help prevent and heal that for other people, thinking that the world would also embrace this. Because of course they would. Why wouldn't they? And then you immediately smack right into the system, right? The justice system does not protect victims, period, full stop. (laughs) Anyone who's in the justice system knows this. You have to fight like hell to get justice for rape survivors. And especially children, because children are definitely not protected by the law. And if we've learned nothing in the last decade, we know this. Because adults write the laws and children can't vote, and children can't pay for their political agendas. So the law does not protect children. The justice system does not fully work for victims. And in general, the world has really screwed up views about sexual assault. And again, haven't we learned that in the last year (laughs) with the Me Too movement? So what I found when I did that work, victims are not believed Even if they have all the evidence, even if they have all the DNA, even if they are the quote unquote perfect victim, they're not believed. And when that realization hit me in my work, because I'm a survivor, it floored me. It was devastating. It felt very personal. And still, I wasn't noticing feeling all of that vulnerability and that helplessness and hopelessness and powerlessness in my body because I was showing up for the work day in, day out. I was there early, I was there late. I was there on weekends. You need it. I'm your yes girl. And then I burned out. So I began to notice myself being exhausted. And again, exhaustion that does not, is not alleviated by sleep. I began to lose interest in intimacy and in being touched and certainly in having sex. And I'm going to say this again because I know this is something that happens often but is so taboo. First of all, we can't talk about healthy sex. So we certainly can't talk about non-healthy sex like sexual assault. And then we cannot, absolutely cannot talk about people who do people work, doing social work, helping healing and change making, having sex or not. (laughs) But this is something when I talk privately to other helpers and healers, it comes up and it's a revelation. So I'm sharing this with you. I'm being very vulnerable myself to share with you because I want you to know that it is normal when you are feeling burnout to not want to be intimate. Gender does not matter. Gender identity does not matter. Gender roles do not matter, but it is a normal reaction. 
But I wasn't aware of that. No one had told me this and I didn't know. So I just lost intimacy. I, at the time, was in a very committed relationship with my boyfriend, who is now my husband. We've been together for 22 years. He's amazing. I love him. He's wonderful. And he's safe. He's nonviolent, right? He's never, ever, ever forced me to do anything. And still, one of the things that was happening is anytime he would put his hand on me, I would jump. And I did not notice this. And it went on for months until finally he spoke up and he said, hey, sweetheart, you know, I, I don't know what's going on, but I noticed that anytime I touch you, even if it's just to touch your shoulder to say, hey, what do you want to eat for dinner tonight? You jump like three feet. And I literally had not noticed that in my body because, again, I was not paying attention to my body. The burnout also started to change my worldview. And by that, I mean I could not see a father and a daughter walking together without assuming that there was sexual abuse happening. And that is not okay, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, it ha it's common, right? Unfortunately, sexual abuse from fathers and daughters is, is very common. And not every father is a rapist, like straight up. But in my worldview, because I was dealing with sexual assault day in and day out, and I wasn't taking care of myself, and I certainly wasn't paying attention to my own traumas being triggered, I would see a father and a daughter together and my whole body would get buzzy and I would I would feel like there was I had to do something. I had to watch them very closely to make sure I didn't see any signs, you know, and if he looked at his daughter weird or if she looked at him and looked uncomfortable, then I would just swoop in and make sure I took care of it. But that's ridiculous. And that is no way to live. So, burnout with the asterisks, the burnout for those of us who do helping healing and change making work, the burnout can actually begin to change our worldview and our perception of humanity. And that is dangerous. Because if you live in a world where every father is a rapist or every man is violent or every black person is going to rob you or every, right? Like you cannot live in a world like that and be healthy. And it's just not a world I want to live in. But I started to notice my worldview changing and I was assuming that there was sexual assault like behind every door. And that got too much for me. So I burnt out. And I didn't even know that that burnout had happened until I moved away from that work. And the moving away from that work happened very naturally. My husband got a job out here in California, so we had to move for his work. So I had to resign from my position, not because I didn't love the work and didn't, wouldn't have kept going, but I had to resign because I was leaving the state. But it wasn't until I'd been off of the job for a whole two weeks that I noticed something shift in my body. I noticed there was no longer this hum. And I don't know how to explain it, but some of you know what I mean. But there was this hum of, of buzzing, of activity, of, I don't think I'd call it anxiety, but just this buzzing in my body that I didn't pay attention to and I was not aware of until it stopped. And that's when I realized, oh, I was burnt out on that job. And lucky I didn't hit a brick wall. And I didn't have any major health issues. And it was maybe just because I was lucky and I was in my early 20s and I was young and healthy enough to not notice it completely. But in my second burnout, there was. So that first burnout, again, was something I hadn't noticed until I shifted away from rape crisis work. And when we moved to California, one of the things that my husband, I, you know, I was looking for jobs and I was applying to all the usuals. And my husband basically said, hey, sweetheart, I love you and I'm really proud of the work you're doing. But when we move, could you look for a job doing anything but rape crisis work? <laughs> Pretty please. <laughs> and I, you know, I said, okay, yeah, I, I hear you. That makes sense. Again, he had been noticing things in me and the way that I was behaving at home that I was not realizing. And to be honest, when he would bring some of those things to my attention, I would get upset with him. Like, who do you think you are? <laughs> right? Like, don't call me out on this. I'm doing the work. I show up every day. I work hard. I'm saving lives. What are you doing? <laughs> so sometimes we do get a little self-righteous in our helping and healing work. And it's always good to listen to the loved ones around us when they start to tell us, hey, I'm noticing this. And that can be really, really hard <laughs> to do. So again, a little vulnerability, but it's honest. So my second burnout, I was, my husband had said, please don't do any rape crisis work. So I said, okay. I know I'll apply for jobs in the education field because there's no trauma in education. <laughs> Silly me. So yeah, there's plenty of trauma in education, again, because we're working with human beings. But I, so I started working in a school district out here in California. And I actually decided to do my kind of fall back on my communication degree. So I started doing public information for this school district. And it was wonderful. I had a great superintendent he brought me in. He kind of sat me down and did the pep talk of, you know, we really want you here. 
we've seen the work that you do. It's awesome. So I had a lot of support. I was doing amazing work. I, I was one of the only African-American administrators at that time. Um, so it felt a little tokenizing, but you know, I'm kind of used to that. That's been the story of my life. I end up being one of the few people of color in, in administration. So I was going along and then as it happens in every organization, things shift. And I got a new superintendent and a few of the folks that had been supportive of me left for other districts or to move on, move on in their lives. And I found myself with a superintendent and with supervisors who didn't necessarily know what I did or care about what I did. They were all older white men. And here I was this young African-American girl, like who does she think she is? I was often at the table for council meetings and board meetings and cabinet meetings, like high level meetings, there were often times when other people in the room would ask why I was there. Not asking me directly, of course, because that's too real, but asking other people very passive aggressively loudly enough for me to hear, like, why is she in the room? I thought this was a cabinet meeting. I thought this was an executive meeting. And without the support of a loving, caring, kind supervisor, those other voices, the other passive aggressive gaslighty voices got the best. They were the ones that were then in charge. So I was basically kind of, I, I got to keep my job, but it was, I was pushed to the side and very much, you know, okay, yeah, whatever you, whatever you want to do, just, just do your work and stay out of everybody's way. And I found myself working very long hours because the work demanded it. And I'm a perfectionist overachiever, which is also a trauma response. That'll be for another episode. <laughs> but because I'm an overachiever and a perfectionist, I make sure that if I'm given a task, it's done well like to the T. So I, that's how I was able to keep my job. Even as people were trying to mess with me and gaslight me and sabotage me, like it doesn't work because I overachieve anyway. So I'm used to this. Again, this is a dance many people of color and many women do. But it was very, the gaslighting really chipped away at my sanity. The bureaucracy and the passive aggressiveness passed on as professionalism, quite frankly, was something that became really unstable for me. I was working long hours, evenings, weekends, and I felt like I was giving a lot to an organization that didn't really care about me. And then I got a pink slip. So basically the folks figured out a way to try to move me out. It was by saying, I'm non-essential. We're in a budget crisis. You have to go. And I knew it was nonsense. Everybody else told me, yeah, we see what's happening to you, but legally there's nothing I could do about it. But what was happening with that burnout, with that level of burnout, because I was already work, I was working with people, I was working with families and students and in this community, but I was dealing with racism and gaslighting and, and passive aggressiveness and tokenism. And it all just caught up with me. My hair started falling out in clumps. Now, and I'm a curly girl. I have curly hair. I detangle my hair in the shower. I'm used to hair, <laughs> like having lots of hair come out of my head and be on the, right in the bathroom. But this was like noticeably more hair. I began to have rashes and breakouts in places that I like. I usually have fairly clear skin, but I would get rashes on my body or a breakout on my face. I had insomnia. I was having trouble sleeping, which meant I wasn't getting a lot of rest. So that exhaustion came in. And it got to a point where I actually had to be tested by my doctor for lupus. The concern was that all of these symptoms added up to an autoimmune illness. So I was being tested for lupus. It was blood tests. I had CAT scans and ultrasounds and all these other tests done to find out what was going on with my body. Why were all these symptoms happening? And it wasn't until I quit that job, again, within two weeks of quitting that job, three years later, all those symptoms disappeared magically, which should tell you something, right? And again, even as that was all happening, I knew it was uncomfortable. I knew that things were not right. I knew there was a dissonance between my passion for helping people and what I was actually being able to do given the limits of the agency or the organization. But I wasn't fully aware of it and doing my own self-care in, in the moment, again, until I hit that brick wall of illness. And when I was getting sick, I, I thought, you know what, this is ridiculous. I, I need to do something else. So I shifted and I went to a different district doing more people-centered work, more community engagement. And what I found there, unfortunately, was the same stuff I had at the previous place. Gaslighting, passive aggressiveness, past office professionalism, a lack of sanity, literally in some meetings going like, what the fuck is going on? And, and does anybody else see what's happening? <laughs> There was institutionalized racism. There was institutionalized bigotry and bias and tokenism. I was being asked to do a really important job of identifying homeless youth and helping support those families. 
But then in doing that, people were literally saying, well, what do you even do all day? Because I was in a lot of different meetings with service providers. And, you know, many of you who do social work, you know, like if one, when you're working with one family, it's not like, oh, 30 minutes, you figure out their stuff and you're on to the next one. You're working with a family and you might be working on that one issue that they have all day or all week. You know, if I had a family that needed to go to a shelter, that was a four hour process for me just to find them a place to go, let alone do the follow up bits and the documentation, right? You all know this. So, in doing those things, if I wasn't in the office, I got a lot of, well, what does she do anyway? She's never here. How do we know she's not just out getting her nails done? It was a lot of that kind of nonsense. So, I was working my butt off on one side and really, you know, being traumatized by the, by the traumas of those that I serve, picking up that vicarious trauma. I'm dealing with homelessness. I'm dealing with you know, students who are sexually assaulted or have past sexual abuse. I'm dealing with families dealing with domestic violence. I'm working with mental health, right? All these things I'm dealing with and dealing with the fact that other, some of my colleagues weren't supportive. Some of my colleagues were saying, what does she even do? Others of my colleagues, when someone would say, where is Nicole? Instead of saying, oh, she's at this meeting for housing, they would say, I don't know where she is. So then people started to think I just wasn't showing up for work, right? So all of these things were happening. And of course, you're supposed to squeeze in a personal life somewhere in there, right? <laughs> so again, I was going along, going along, going along until I got stopped by the brick wall of another health crisis. On my birthday in 2016, again, not, not too long ago, I woke up with shingles. Shingles, people, shingles. I'm not 60 years old. I just turned 40, which I'm very proud of. But no, you should not be getting shingles this early. And this is what all the doctors said. Like, wait, why do you have shingles? You're too young for this. And then their next question would be like, do you have any stress in your life? Ha ha, ha ha, ha ha. Yes, a little bit of stress, right? So I literally got shingles. I was out of commission for two weeks. And the shingles were, you guys, they were on my forehead. I looked like a Neanderthal. I, my, I had a, a brow ridge and this beautifully red, crusty rash on my head. So... I, the burnout literally stopped me, palm to the forehead, girl, sit down, take care of yourself, or you're going to get sick. And I'm one of those people, I don't know if anybody else listening to this, I get sick when there's time off. So Christmas break, spring break, summer break, anytime there's time off, I know I'm going to get sick for that per- a little period of time. Now, it's better the last few years because I'm doing more radical self-care. I'm actually taking care of myself. I'm noticing burnout before it happens. But this is an ongoing thing. So I got my shingles. I realized I had to make some changes. I still am working at the same job. I've just put some very clear boundaries around my work so that I'm not dealing with everybody else's nonsense. I'm dealing with the weight and the vicarious trauma of those I'm serving. And that will always be there as long as I'm a social worker. I just have to be aware of it. But I am no longer tolerating the passive aggressiveness passed on as professionalism. I am no longer tolerating gaslighting or lack of sanity in in processes. And I've gotten a pink slip from this other job, but I pushed it back. And with the work I've done in the community, the community pushed back on my behalf as well. So I'm now working in a job that tried to get rid of me not once, but twice. (laughs) And I love the work I get to do with the families and the students. And I am, you know, a homemaker. (laughs) You know, I, I, I come home, I... I make dinner for my family. I watch my little grandbaby, Kenya. I have a full home life. And I can balance those things because I'm doing some very radical self-care. And because of my burnouts, I've learned several things. So one is that burnout is really a sign that something's off and that something about who we want to be and who our true selves are is not aligned with the work that we're doing in the world. And this is really important because there's a message to burnout. And that message is basically that our mind, body, and spirit need to be in alignment for there not to be complete dissonance. Now, what that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean that like your authentic person is as a very, you know, artistic person. So you have to be an artist for work. I don't necessarily mean that. But if you are an artistic, creative person in the job that you do for the world, are you still able to be creative and artistic? Even if you're an accountant, can you still bring yourself to that work? Or do you have to cut yourself off to be able to do the work? And for those of us in the helping, healing, and change-making fields as activists or as educators or as social workers or as, you know, as first responders, a lot of times home and, and work that we do in the world and our personal alignment feels like it's all one thing. And that can also be overwhelming. But burnout is ultimately 
a way to expose a fault line between us and society. It highlights the gaps between our ideas and what reality is. It highlights the transition between that which has passed or is passing away, right? The old and the what is coming, the emerging new. And that can also be a weird fault line for some of us. If we've been in agencies long enough where we see a big shift coming, that big shift could be good or bad. And this happens often in the social service agencies and in education, right? In education, like every four to six years, there's a new something, a new big thing that everybody has to shift to. And now we have all the professional development for it and all the grants for it and all the money for it and all the curriculum for it. And six years later, wait, we're doing something different. So there's a lot of that as well. And burnout exposes the crisis of old and new visions and passion and reality colliding. And I appreciate, there's a book called The Joy of Burnout by Dr. Dina Globerman. And it's really a beautiful view that burnout is an opportunity. And it is an opportunity for us to take a pause, listen to our bodies, again, noticing what's happening in our bodies, not intellectually, but in our bodies, and to be able to make some really serious changes for how we want to show up for ourselves in our life and in our work. But I appreciate her quote, she says, the, when the reality outside doesn't match what we expect, it often hits us at our deepest wounding. We are faced not only with outer contradictions, but with some aspect of ourselves that we have not yet fully understood and cared for. This is exactly what my burnouts have been for me. I knew about my past traumas. I knew what my deepest wounding was. And I also knew that I had come to the work because I wanted to heal that wound, but I was not fully aware that I still needed to take care of myself and heal that wound ongoing to be able to do this work. And when we acknowledge burnout, we're able to let go of those unhelpful patterns that we've developed, whether it's overwork, overachieving, perfectionism, over caregiving without give, taking anything right? The, the almost codependency where our identity is wrapped up in our ability to care for others. That's a big learning curve for me. When we acknowledge burnout, we also drive ourselves in the service of others. And we have to learn a new way to drive and a new direction in which to drive. So it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to quit doing the work that we love, but it does mean we have to do the work we love in a different way. Maybe we have to put up very clear boundaries for ourselves and for others. You know, for me, one of the things is I turn my, my work phone off at 5.30 p.m. on Fridays, and I do not turn it back on until 8.30 a.m. on Monday morning. I do not take work calls on the weekends anymore. <laughs> I used to because they're saving to be done, y'all. <laughs> but I did not create all the trauma in the world. It is not my job to heal it all, period, full stop. And when we acknowledge burnout, we also recognize that there is a huge potential for creativity, for love, for passion, when we can give ourselves the things that we need as we're burning out. So the challenge for me is when I burn out, I wasn't listening to what my body needed at any point in the process. So it got to a point where my body stopped. And you know, Gabor Mate has an amazing book called the Bo When the Body Says No. And I love it. But it's literally your body will stop you if you don't stop yourself. And I appreciate that one of the things that Dr. Dina Globerman says in The Joy of Burnout is that there's always an inner map that affects our choices, and we need to understand the map if we want to take responsibility for our lives. It is not our fault, but it is up to us to do something about it. And that's the reality of my own burnout. I knew the inner map and, and how it was impacting my choices, but I didn't fully understand where that map was leading me, and I also wasn't uh, being com self-compassionate enough to hold space for myself as I was going along my route. So that is my plea to you. Those of you who are listening to this, those of you who are currently doing helping healing or change-making work in the world, I want you to be able to do this work that sets your heart on fire in a way that doesn't completely consume you in the flames. Because the work that you are doing is important and it is needed in the world. There are people in this world who are oppressed and who are vulnerable and who are at risk and who are being victimized. And eventually, yes, those people can help themselves. But for a moment, they need someone to reach out to them and pull them up. And that is our job if we are a helper, healer, a change maker. It is our job to reach out to those folks, meet them where they are, and pull them into safety. And that is all we can do. There are systems beyond us that are working against what we are trying to do. 
And for some of us, our change-making work is in those systems to try to change them and stop the status quo and shift things. And that's a beautiful thing I see happening right now at the political level. We finally have clear eyes and clear minds in some of our political seats who are saying, this is not okay. The way we've been doing things is not okay. We're eating each other alive, so we have to stop this. But that's going to take some time. And if you are going to be a helper, healer, or change maker, you have to stay here and in this work for as long as you can if you really want to affect change and see change happen. And that means we can't be burning out three years in, five years in, seven years in, 10 years in. My passion, my plea for those of you who are listening to this is that you continue to do the amazing work you're doing, that you take care of yourself in a very radical, roots-focused way. And what I mean by that is that you are taking care to make sure that you are eating enough food, healthy food, you are getting enough hydration, you are getting enough sleep daily, eight hours or more, that you are getting enough physical movement and exercise in your body to be healthy, and that you are connecting with other human beings. That is the basis of radical self-care. And when we look at radical healing, and this is something, again, Dr. Globerman talks about in her book, The Joy of Burnout. She said it's about making a radical shift in the very basis of our lives that burnout is asking us to do. It is moving forward to a wholeness which involves all of us rather than just our wholeheartedness about something or someone else. So it's not necessarily what we want to do in the world or our feelings of being wholehearted. Again, it's not about intellectual. This is something we actually have to put into practice, and it has to be something we do every single day for ourselves because we are worthy of this care. I'm going to say that again. We are worthy of this care. We are worthy of the care that we give to other people. And in order for us to continue the amazing work we get to do in this world and what a privilege it is, we have to be sustained and not just survive this world. Because I'm not down with like, oh, yeah, I'm, a, I'm just surviving. No, 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 no. We have to be able to thrive in this work. We have to be able to come to this work full of joy, full of presence and being grounded and centered and ready to do the good work that needs to be done because we have everything moving against us. It takes a lot to change the status quo. It takes a lot to change systems. It takes a lot to change policy and it takes time and it takes institutional memory, which we lose when we have turnover too quickly. So one of the things that Dr. Globerman talks about is radical healing. She says, you know, now we have the need to reconnect because before we were a little disconnected from the important aspects of who we really were. Now we have the need to see what it is ourselves or see that it is ourselves who are of value rather than our contributions being of value. And this is very, very important. The work you do is important, but you, you are more important. And you can only do the good work you do if you are taking care of you. She says, now we can be part of an evolving creative whole instead of feeling like we had to save the world wholeheartedly. Now we can know that our being, our being what, what we really are is what will lead us to doing the work that we really want to do. And that now we are moving toward wholeness and joy, where before we were wholehearted, now we actually have to move into that wholeheartedness and joy. So I really appreciate her bit. She says, the path of transformation from wholeheartedness to burnout and then from burnout to joy is how we can move through this process. Now, I was asked, you know, I recently did a presentation for a group of about 90 city year young people. So city year is, you know, you have a year of interning in public education in schools, charter schools to help young people who are struggling. But it's a year long program. Um, and City Year invited me to talk to their newbies about stress, burnout, and self-care. And afterwards, a young man came up to me and he said, you know, I kind of feel like self-care has been used as a weapon by some of these organizations. So we had a really good conversation. And ultimately, what, what came out was that in the helping, healing, and change-making world, oftentimes self-care, taking time for yourself, really focusing on self-love, self-care, self-stability is something that is seen as selfish. It's something that is seen as weak. It's something that is seen as, you know, not being fully here and fully available for the work. When in reality, it's brave, it's courageous, and it's necessary. The other thing he mentioned was when organizations use self-care as a weapon. So basically mandating self-care, making it count against your productivity, or using it in a way that is um, more putting the onus on the individual. 
right? So the organizations and systems can say, oh, well, it's not really us. It's you, you're too weak and this is too traumatic for you. So you need to deal with this in the form of self-care. And that's not at all what I hope to convey in this. I really hope that what you're hearing is the need to do the self-care isn't a punishment and it is not a cop-out for us actually looking toward the systems and, and the large organizations to change, right? We constantly have to be challenging these organizations, challenging public education, challenging the justice system, challenging the foster care, challenging the child welfare system, right? We have to be challenging all of these systems while we're doing the work. And because these systems are overwhelming and they focus on the status quo and they've been there, you know, generations before us and they'll be here generations after us, hopefully in a very different way. We also have to recognize that, yes, we can change those things, but it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of effort. So in the meantime, the only way we can actually stay in for the long haul to make those larger system changes is if we take responsibility for ourselves in the form of self-care. And what I mean by that is the only person you can absolutely control is yourself. And even then you don't have a ton of control, (laughs) right? So making sure that you are showing up grounded and centered and present, but you're also showing up, you know, having fully slept, (laughs) having eaten something, having been hydrated and having some connection with other people and movement. Because if we don't show up that way, then all these other systemic stuff that we deal with is going to be overwhelming and we're going to want to pull away. And if radical self-care for you is also saying no more, throwing up serious boundaries, and even potentially resigning from the position you are in, then absolutely you need to do that. But I want you to really think about, do I need to leave the profession I'm in? Or do I just need to, again, change the direction I'm driving, (laughs) right? Or do I need to throw away the whole car? (laughs) And that's okay. I have friends who have been in child welfare for uh, 10, 20 years, and they get out and they're doing nothing related to social work. And they're happy. They're fulfilled. They've Maybe they found their passion by raising children and being a parent or being a foster parent or volunteering in their community. But their day job is very different from, from what it was before because it was too much for them. And that's beautiful. And that's what burnout tells us, right? Burnout is a learning experience. If we really take a moment to sit back and be vulnerable, but also be very compassionate with ourselves to say, hey, girl, what's going on? What do you need? How can we shift this? And some of the hey, girl is going to be, hey, girl, we need to get to therapy. (laughs) And some of it might be, hey, girl, we need to look for a new job. But some of it might also be, hey, girl, I know this work is hard right now because it's triggering things for you. So let's eat some food and let's go to bed early tonight. And then when we get up in the morning, we're going to meditate and notice all the things in our lives that we're grateful for. And then we're going to go to work and we're going to smash things out because we're amazing and we can do this. But often we beat ourselves up. We demean ourselves. We berate ourselves. You know, why do you feel like this? Nobody else feels like this. Everyone else can go, you know, weekends, nights, late nights and not complain, but it's bothering you. What's so weak about you? And that's nonsense. So once we get away from the narratives of self-care being selfish, being lazy, being weak, then we can actually focus on it. And one of the other questions someone asked me after my presentation was, how do we make radical self-care more a part of our daily lives? And what I shared with her was simply that I would suggest that during your day, maybe every two hours, you just take a moment to check in with yourself and see what you need in that moment. And maybe you don't need anything and you can keep working. But maybe in that moment, you need to get up and go get a drink of water. Maybe in that moment, you need to make a phone call to get something off of your mind. Maybe in that moment, you need a hug. Maybe in that moment, you need a nap. (laughs) But it's those moments where we can stop, be still, check in with our bodies, not just our brains, but with our bodies, get curious about what we're feeling, and then meet that need. Because if we do that every few hours, we are going to find ourselves in a better position to be meeting our needs and doing that daily radical self-care rather than waiting until shingles hits us in the forehead or lupus is knocking at our door or we have a stroke or we have a panic attack or we have a heart attack or we get divorced or we fall into addiction, right? I can keep going. But if we are not taking care of ourselves, somewhere down the line, someone else is going to have to do it for us and it's not going to be pleasant and it's not going to be in a, in a way that we can build back from. So my plea to you is that you begin to notice when you are feeling burnt out, that you don't judge yourself for it, that you be, give yourself as much care and compassion as you give to others, and that you hold space for yourself. 
knowing that you are worthy of care and that self-care can be something you do every day for yourself to make sure that everything is okay and aligned inside of you so that you can do the amazing work that this world needs from you. Now, I I will record another podcast with more details and some practical self-care tips and tools. I will just briefly say I'm a big fan of rituals and rhythm, bringing rhythm back into our lives because trauma and stress disrupt the rhythms of our lives. So having a really solid morning routine doesn't have to be much. It can be half hour fully, but doing something in the morning that jumpstarts our day and sets an intention, making sure that we are eating real food and drinking real water throughout the day. And I say that very clearly to myself because there are days when I just have coffee in the morning and that's it. And there are days where I work a whole day and I don't eat anything. And there are days when I work a whole day and I don't go to the bathroom, you guys. Like, And many of you are also nodding because this is you as well. And that works here and there, but it doesn't work long term. And if our goal is truly to change the world and make this place a better place for all children to grow up healthy and happy and loved, we have to stay at it for the long haul. We have to be sustained in this work and we have to thrive in the work so that those we serve can also thrive. So I hope this podcast has been helpful. I hope that it makes sense and that it lands in the right way and that you may have needed to hear something that I've shared during this almost hour of time together that springs in you the awareness of where you are in your burnout and what you need to take care of yourself and support yourself right now. And if you would subscribe to the podcast or play this podcast and give me a review, I would really appreciate it. I want to know what you need next from me. Where do we go from here? What other questions do you have about burnout? And what are some of the hangups you have around self-care? I would love to hear from you. I love spending this time with you all. And I hope that this information resonated. I hope it made sense for you. I hope if you are in the midst of burnout, you recognize it and can get the help you need. I hope if you've had burnouts before, you can go back and say, ah, yes, this is the message it was giving me. And if you haven't experienced a burnout, you can at least begin to use these tools and tips so that you can prevent it yourself. Until next time, friends. Thank you so much for listening to the Steward Project podcast and sharing this space with me. Remembering that how we show up in the world matters, we're all in this together, and we belong to each other. Until next time.